Hello and welcome to episode 2 of Dissecting Dexter, a new podcast devoted to the Showtime series Dexter. This is a spoiler-free podcast, so don't worry if you've not watched the whole series yet. This podcast episode will be looking at Season 1, Episode 2, and we'll only be talking about what's happened up to and including this episode. Last time, we covered the pilot, introducing us to this great show and the compelling character of Dexter Morgan. This time, we're looking at Episode 2, entitled Crocodile. Original air date, 8th of October, 2006, written by Clyde Phillips and directed by Michael Quester, who also directed the pilot. Now, just before we delve into the episode, let me firstly apologise. I've got uh, a bit of a cold, so if my voice sounds a bit croaky or uh, if I sound like I need to cough, that's why. So uh, bear with me, I'll do my best. Okay, let's crack on and dive right into the episode. At the beginning of this episode, we get our first look at the Dexter title sequence with the visuals of Dexter getting ready to go to work, getting dressed, making breakfast. There's some nice imagery, and they very cleverly depict the mundane act of frying egg and bacon, cutting the meat, breaking the egg yolk, brown sauce, splashing on the plate, making all these things seem macabre. We see Dexter tying his shoelaces and making it look like he's ready to use them to strangle someone. In fact, These normal everyday images are all very deliberately presented in a way to reference the violent acts that Dexter commits. The only criticism I'd have of this title sequence is that they're maybe a little bit too long. I end up fast-forwarding through them now, but you really should take the time to watch them carefully at least once to appreciate the care that's gone into producing them. I love Dexter's little smile to camera as he leaves his apartment at the end of the sequence, It's like he knows we're watching. So anyway, we open the episode with Dexter relaxing, swimming in the river. His voiceover talks about dreaming of floating on the surface of his own life, watching it unfold. He watches some kids messing on jet skis, observing how they can laugh and play. It highlights again how detached from the world Dexter is. He often observes humanity, humanity, people just doing their thing, watching like he's no part of it, nothing like normal people, which of course he isn't. It seems that he's got a day off, and he mentions how he'll soon have to go back to doing what he does, and has to savour these days when he gets them. This line is of course loaded, because it could mean two things, his day job in the police, and his secret life as a killer. Like most serial killers, it seems like Dexter satiates his urges to kill, but it's never long before they come back and must be satisfied again. Back at Dexter's apartment, he's browsing his blood slides when his sister Deb knocks at the door. He quickly returns the wooden box to its hiding place and removes the doll's head from the fridge. This was part of the little hello present left by the ice truck killer in the last episode, if you remember. Dexter clearly likes it and has stuck the head to his fridge door. It's interesting that he chooses to hide the fact that this murderer has made contact with him. Revealing this to the detectives could help them get a step closer to catching him, yet Dexter opts to keep it quiet. We know he's fascinated by this killer and has a professional admiration for him. Plus, Dexter doesn't function like any normal human being and has his own motives for secrecy. Anyone else would be going doolally that a murderer's been in their house at all, never mind leaving them something something so gruesome and macabre as well. Deb comes in and 
She and Dexter talk about the search for the ice truck. Deb thinks it's being hidden in plain sight. She says how the killer threw a severed head at Dexter's car and says he clearly isn't shy. Dexter reckons finding the truck is Deb's ticket to becoming a homicide detective. She notices Dexter has some ties laid out on the side. He explains that he's in court today and Deb asks why they don't talk about normal brother-sister stuff with each other. Dexter points out how Deb's a cop. He works for the cops and their dad was a cop. Police stuff is brother-sister stuff to them. Deb holds up a tie next to him and says it brings out his eyes. Now, this was a nice little moment. The tender look on her face, the way she looks at him. Dexter might not be blood-related to Deb. He's her brother, and she clearly loves him, despite this lack of actual blood relation. After Deb leaves, Dexter opens his fridge to look again at the ice truck killer's gift. First he throws a severed head at me, then he leaves me these doll parts, like pieces of a puzzle. I like puzzles. But there's nothing more frustrating than putting a puzzle together and finding that it still doesn't make sense. We cut to the courthouse, where Dexter is being questioned by a lawyer. We learn that Dexter's been working blood spatter for 12 years, and when asked how many cases he's covered in that time, Dexter quickly replies with, 2,103. The lawyer says, well, give or take, to which Dexter responds again, 2,103. The lawyer says, so it's fair to say that blood is your life. After a moment's pause, Dexter agrees. It's amusing to see how Dexter has such a handle on precisely how many cases he's worked on. I'd hazard a guess that even the most dedicated police officer would be hard-pressed to say exactly how many cases they'd worked. Anyway, we then see Dexter walking through the courthouse. Unlike the other guys down at the station, I love coming to court to rub shoulders with the good people of the Sunshine State and Sasquatch. In a courthouse, everyone's on their best behavior. Like they're being watched. And they are. Some people would look at this family and see only tragedy and heartbreak. But I see so much more than that. I see opportunity. Dexter observes a family comforting each other. The father goes into the courtroom and Dexter follows. Inside, there's a prosecutor presenting the facts of a case. A teenage boy was killed by a hit-and-run drink driver. And the driver, Matt Chambers, is on trial here. A repeat drink driver, we hear. It's revealed how the boy was left critically injured, dying at the side of the road for hours before his dead body was later found. The courtroom is played a happy family home movie and the father leaves the courtroom in tears. Dexter observes, noting how he can see their pain and that while on some level he can understand their pain, he can't actually feel their pain. So we get a small insight into Dexter's mind in that he knows that there are emotions and can recognise them in others, but he doesn't possess the ability to properly empathise. Incidentally, Matt Chambers here is played by Sam Trammell. Viewers of True Blood will recognise him as the actor who plays Sam Malott. We see Chambers is weeping, but as Dexter watches him, he doesn't buy the tears for a minute, wondering how far these crocodile tears would get him. 
and here we see how Crocodile became the episode title. Dexter leaves court and travels to a scene under a road bridge where there's a body of a man who has fallen from one of the carriageways. It's pretty graphic. There's a spectacular blood splat emanating from his head, which have caused Dexter's studies and deduces which carriageway he fell from. LaGuerta and Angel Batista are here. Dexter muses again how he's creeped out by LaGuerta's obvious attraction to him. I thought I was creepy, he says. It's funny to note what sort of thing gives Dexter the willies. The irony isn't hard to spot. As Dexter examines the body, he notices something in the guy's mouth. As he leans down with the tweezers, the body spasms suddenly and a spray of blood flies out of his mouth. A medic assures them the man really is dead, but it's quite amusing to see Dexter flinch and get sprayed with yuck. More significantly, though, Dexter pulls a pinky lump from the man's mouth and identifies it as human flesh. Back at the office, and having cleaned his face, Dexter chats to Deb. She's talking about a date she had last night with a guy called Sean. Dexter doesn't want the gory details, but suggests Deb and Sean join him and Rita for dinner. Deb is surprised, but agrees. Dokes walks by, and Batista tries to talk to him, but he gets the brush off. Not now. What crawled up his ass? He hates lab rats. Well, here's a headline. It's lab rats that make us cops look good. Batista and Dexter exchange a nice look, and it's obvious Batista respects him. Angel Batista is a good, honest, decent detective, although not infallible. He doesn't realise that Dokes' problem isn't with lab rats in general, just one particular lab rat. Then LaGuerta comes in with some bad news. The body under the bridge has been identified as Ricky Simmons, and he was a cop. LaGuerta and Dokes go to Simmons' house to break the news to his next of kin. Dokes peers in the window and sees something to alarm him. He draws his gun and busts open the front door. We see a woman lying on the carpet, blood on her head and underneath her. Dokes rushes to help her and calls her Cara, we presume Ricky's wife. We cut to a bit later. More police are on the scene now. Dexter's taking photos and Batista is disgusted that someone would go after a cop's family. We learn that Simmons had been working deep undercover in the family of Carlos Guerrero. He'd been undercover for ten months and his cover was thought to be good. Dexter finds a mobile phone under the sofa and they see the last number Cara dialed was her husband Ricky. From this, we cut to a family scene at Rita's house with Dexter having fun with Cody. It seems so far that Dexter only really lets himself go with Rita's kids. He lets his guard down and has fun. Someone devoid of any emotion would struggle to do this so naturally. It's another pointer that Dexter maybe has more natural feelings than he realises. Rita and Dexter share a conversation about his day and she wonders how he copes with all that blood. Dexter tells her about their plan to have a double date with Deb and her new boyfriend, Sean. Rita's excited at the prospect of a proper grown-up meal. She obviously doesn't get out too much, but her life wouldn't seem to have been especially normal for a long time. But Dexter is thinking more that it's a chance to take Rita out safely. Deb will be his chaperone. He's still not comfortable about feeling comfortable with Rita. OK, we're now over a third of the way into this episode and no mention of the ice truck killer, our big story arc for the season. However, Dexter gets a phone call from Deb to change that. She's found an ice truck. At the scene, 
Dexter and Deb have an interesting conversation. How'd you find it? I put the word out with patrol, you know, the whole hide in plain sight thing. Well, I'm here, like this one and called me. It's a busy street. Anyone see the driver? The restaurant manager said it was here when he opened up. Is this the one you saw? I feel like a kid at his own surprise party. This is the same truck. It's hard to say. It all happened so fast. Let's go on a non-forensic geek limb here and say that it is. Why is it still running? Keeps the back compartment refrigerated. What's most interesting is that Dexter chooses not to reveal his certainty that this really is the truck he saw. Why he would choose not to tell Deb is a curious question to consider. We know he relishes the prospect of interaction with this killer, so maybe, as dangerous and unprofessional as it is, he prefers to try and keep their private game alive than help Deb with this huge potential break in the case. Obviously, we saw earlier in the episode how he was keeping things quiet from Deb. Highly irresponsible, but for Dexter, his mind just doesn't operate in the same rational way as the majority of us. Anyway, they call for backup and the truck is opened up. Inside, they immediately realise that this most definitely is the right truck. They find a large block of ice with the fingertips from one hand neatly frozen within. Dexter observes how the killer has left them exactly the right body parts they need to identify the victim, like he's leaving a trail of breadcrumbs, and of course, Dexter is enthralled. LaGuerta and Captain Matthews have a conversation at the scene. The captain learns it was Deb who found the truck, and LaGuerta explains how she encourages all her officers to think outside the box. Obviously, she neglects to mention how she previously positively discouraged Deb's ice truck theory, but happily accepts Captain's praise now. He asks LaGuerta to congratulate Deb for him. But instead, LaGuerta, being the cow she is, chews Deb out for not keeping her appraised on what she was doing. She really shows herself up to be a prized bitch here. LaGuerta is certainly one of the less likeable characters in the show so far, and is a bit of a stereotypical power woman, and takes every opportunity to put Deb down. She probably recognises Deb's potential, but maybe feels threatened by another woman, another woman officer doing well. And so the police start stripping the truck, looking for clues. Dexter observes, and if, in a funny moment, Masuka comes up to him, holding a cloth with a dark stain on it. He asks Dexter if it's blood, and Dexter tells him it's chocolate, and he's got it on his shirt too. Masuka tuts and wanders off, mumbling how it's a new shirt. Vince Masuka never has a huge amount to do in the show, and many of his appearances are just like this, providing a moment of humour. He's always a likeable guy, though, despite being a total perv. Dexter overhears Batista and LaGuerta talking about not having found any more evidence in the truck yet. Dexter muses how they won't find anything. This killer is way too meticulous. He's planned everything with great care. Deb says how the killer is toying with them, and Dexter knows she's not wrong. He muses how the truck isn't a clue, but the fingers are. Back at the office, Masuka is pouring warm water on the ice block to carefully melt the fingertips free, as Batista, LaGuerta, Deb and Dexter look on. Again, Masuka provides some comic relief before they see the fingertips more closely. Watching ice melt, this is fun. Stand a little closer, Morgan, and I'll melt your heart. I think he's got a crush on you, Dex. Huh? Yo, I was talking to Morgan, the sister. Vince Masuka only swings one way. Yeah, from vine to vine. Enough. <laughs> I'm glad to see the sexual harassment seminar have really paid off. 
Oh, this is seriously fucked up, my friends. Why go to all this trouble? What's this sick son of a bitch trying to tell us? Not us. Me. My freezer. The painted doll's fingernails. I think he's trying to impress me. And it's working. We see that the fingernails are painted different colours. It's another detail that adds to Dexter's increasing intrigue and fascination with this killer. Since the doll in his fridge, Dexter knows the killer is talking to him. So we cut to Batista on the phone, briefly, and we discover there might be some domestic issues with his wife, but it's not clear what. Maybe we'll come back to that later. LaGuerta goes to talk to Dokes. We hear that Kara Simmons is still in surgery, and Dokes plays LaGuerta a phone call between Kara Simmons and Ricky, although we only hear Kara talking, clearly terrified, followed by the sound of a gunshot. Batista comes in to say they have a DNA match, presumably on the flesh sample found in Ricky Simmons' mouth. It belongs to Norberto Cervantes, although no doubt my English accent and cold doesn't do the name justice. On hearing the name, Dokes strides purposefully out of the office. We cut to a group of Hispanic men playing dominoes under a large awning. We see Cervantes receiving a roll of money from a younger Hispanic man who we assume is a member of the Guerrero crime family probably Carlo Guerrero. They're speaking Spanish, so we don't know what they're saying, but the police arrive and they arrest arrest Cervantes. Dokes has a brief exchange with with the younger man, and Dokes picks up on a thinly veiled threat in his words, which, on the face of it, could seem innocuous. But credit to Dokes. Love him or hate him, he's a perceptive man, intuitive and intelligent. He's a good detective, and the man's words are not lost on him. From here, we return to the courtroom, and Dexter watching the continuing trial of Matt Chambers, who's now giving his testimony, professing his sobriety. He's also claiming that his car had been stolen hours before the accident, and so it wasn't him driving. He appears to be distraught that his car was involved, and that he now wrongly stands accused. But Dexter observes. Men like Matt Chambers know how to pull on the invisible mask of sympathy, even empathy. And otherwise, right-thinking people don't stand a chance. Dexter is obviously convinced of the man's guilt, and can see right through the facade. He uses a similar facade to disguise his own dark secrets, so he finds it easy to see through the mask of others. However, the jury doesn't, and Chambers is acquitted. We cut then to an interview room, and Dokes and LaGuerta are interrogating Cervantes, who seems like a typical, unrepentant thug. He baits Dokes into hitting him before they spring the physical evidence of the chunk of flesh tying him to Ricky Simmons' murder. We go back to the Simmons' house and Dexter has set up a rig similar to the one we saw in the pilot with red wool strung out to mimic the path of the blood spatter. It's a really effective technique that makes for a very interesting scene visually. I don't know if it's a real technique that forensic analysts use. If any of you know, dear listeners, do drop me a line, I'd be interested to know. Batista is admiring Dexter's woolly handiwork and makes an astute observation. You must have been a motherfucker at Cat's Cradle. I never played it. Yeah, I know. There's a lot of swearing in Dexter, but sometimes it is pretty funny. Anyway, Dexter and Batista act out what the blood spatter indicates happened and discover a rogue drop of blood on the floor. Subsequent DNA analysis ties it to Cervantes, linking him then with both murder scenes now. Back at the station, Dokes is ready to go, but LaGuerta holds him back. 
she wants to use the evidence to get Cervantes to roll on Guerrero and help bring down the bigger fish. Dokes is angry at the prospect of Cervantes getting a deal and walking, but LaGuerta is concerned more with the bigger picture. Dexter looks around and observes the faces of the other officers, all affected by losing one of their own. We turn to a flashback of Harry Morgan practising a tribute to Davy Sanchez, his partner who we learn was murdered on the job. He seems devastated by the loss and says he has two choices. Honour Davy's memory and catch the bastard who did this to him. He says it's not about retaliation or balancing the books, it's about something deep inside. He doesn't say at this point what the second choice is. We cut to Dexter in a bar, sitting next to Mac Chambers. He strikes up a conversation with him. It's all very friendly and pally, and when, Dex- uh, when Chambers goes to leave, Dexter asks him if he's alright to drive. Chambers replies that he's been a lot worse. Straight away we see that Chambers was lying in court when he said he'd been sober, and also that he has no qualms about drink driving. Dexter carefully collects Chambers' glass in a handkerchief. He later gets his fingerprint from it and runs it through the police computer. We find out that Chambers has been pretty busy around the country, under different names, and has committed several deaths by drink driving. Or caused several deaths, I should say. Dexter prepares his killing room. My father taught me one thing above all others, to be sure. And I am. Matt Chambers, Miami is your last stop. If God is in the details, and if I believed in God, then he's in this room with me. I just wish he'd brought an extension cord. Again, we get this indicator of the code Dexter lives by, a code that Harry helped devise to help keep Dexter undetected. Dokes visits Cara Simmons in hospital. He told LaGuerta earlier that he knew Ricky Simmons from playing softball with him, yet when he rushed to the wounded Cara's side, he told her it was James and acted as if he knew her too. Would he have known her if he'd only played softball with her husband? You can't help but wonder. Now in the hospital, Dokes is at her bedside. We see LaGuerta watching him and maybe wondering the same thing we're wondering, especially when Cervantes had said that Cara Simmons was sleeping around. We're obviously meant to suspect that Dokes could have been doing the diddly with Cara. You're listening to Dissecting Dexter. We cut to Dexter, Rita, Deb and Sean eating al fresco. Dexter spots the man we now know to be Carlos Guerrero in his car, being sold some lobster. The four of them make small talk. Deb and Sean make out a bit, and Rita puts a hand on Dexter's thigh under the table, something that gives Dexter a little shock. Deb and Sean head to the bar, leaving Dexter and Rita alone. Seems like a nice guy. They can barely keep their hands off each other. I can kill a man, dismember his body, and be home in time for Letterman. But knowing what to say when my girlfriend's feeling insecure, I'm totally lost. It's sad how Dexter recognises that he needs to say something sensitive here, but simply can't find the words to say. He seems not to have it in him to come up with anything appropriate. We then cut to a jail cell where Cervantes is handcuffed and taken out by a police officer, being told he's being taken to a more secure facility. However, he never makes it. The officer stabs him repeatedly, saying, this is from Mr Guerrero. It's pretty graphic. The stabbing is violent and the sound of the blood pouring from Cervantes afterwards is quite chilling. From this scene of great violence, we cut to Cody and Astor's bedroom as Dexter sings them to sleep with a lullaby. 
Afterwards, he and Rita cuddle up on the sofa. Rita nibbles his ear, and of course Dexter feels very awkward. But they end up having a good snog. But when Dexter starts to let his hands wander, the dirty bugger, Rita pulls away and covers up. Dexter is obviously relieved for his own sake. He doesn't want to make the excuse, but he actually comes up with something appropriate to say. I'm sorry. Tell me. I, I can't do this. It's okay. That's okay. I'm okay. We have an elephant in the room, and his name is Sex. Tell me about it. As far as I'm concerned, it could just stay in the corner and mind its own damn business. It's easier said than done. Yeah. But it needs to be right. For both of us. Or... It won't be right for either of us. I don't want that, do you? No. You know... I can't believe I found the one good, truly decent man left on the planet. You can add your own punchline on the end of that, but strangely, Dexter doesn't. In the police station the next morning... Dexter is analysing the fingertips left by the ice truck killer and he shows Deb. He's found that they were removed after the girl had died. Deb reveals that they've ID'd the victim as another prostitute. Dexter observes how Deb puts up her mouthy front so people don't see how vulnerable she really is. He also says that he's not interested in whose fingertips they are, just what his new friend is trying to say. We see here what a strange line Dexter's walking. His police work really plays second fiddle to his fascination with playing this dangerous game with a serial killer. I mean, to you or I, as hopefully normal, rational people, Dexter has no idea who this person is, or that he himself could be in mortal danger. Doesn't he have a sense of self-preservation? He's quite complacent in his belief that the killer means him no harm. I mean... The killer could just be toying with Dexter before killing him, yet Dexter seems to have this sixth sense about people like him. He can read them and understand their motives and intentions, or at least thinks he can. He's assessed the ice truck killer and he's confident that he's in no actual danger himself. Deb gets summoned by Captain Matthews and LaGuerta, who proudly tells Deb how, he, how well she's performed in the last few days. The confusion on Deb's face is evident, given the strip she got torn off earlier. LaGuerta tells her she's being reassigned from vice back to homicide in reward for her good work. You can tell she's not ecstatic about it, though. Captain Matthews compliments Deb on being a good cop like her dad, something that really puts a big smile on her face. One thing that drives Deb is the desire to honour her father by being the best cop that she can. She has a lot of insecurities and it's nice to see how bouncy and giddy she gets at this praise from her superiors. Good honour. Later that day, they get the news that Kara Simmons has died in hospital. LaGuerta breaks the news to Dokes, who's working late on the Simmons case, and she can see the truth and knows he was sleeping with Kara, something he doesn't deny. She really should take him off the case now, given his personal involvement. 
but Dokes maintains there is no one better now motivated to break the case than him. Dokes and LaGuerta do have some professional history together, so it's no real surprise that she cuts him some slack. Next, we go to Dexter in his car, syringe in hand, waiting for Matt Chambers at his house. He gets a text from Deb, though, wanting to meet him immediately at the Crab Shack, a regular haunt of theirs. Dexter breaks away, knowing Chambers will still be there when he comes back. Deb is really happy about her reassignment, and she's revelling in LaGuerta's discomfort at having to say those words of praise to her. It turns out Deb's boyfriend, Sean, is married, so that's the end of that. Dexter spots Carlos Guerrero. He keeps seeing him, doesn't he? Coincidence, maybe. Maybe some foreshadowing. You wonder if Guerrero might cross paths with Dexter's killing table eventually. We get a flashback of Harry Morgan with young Dexter. The killer of Harry's partner, Davy, has walked free. Seems like Harry busted him, but there was a problem with the validity of it, and the suspect has been released. Jesus, Dad, it's called being on time. You ever hear of it? I was having a bad day. The captain and I had a discussion. Yeah, well, maybe you should... Wait, well, what kind of bad day? It's about the guy who killed Davy, isn't it? The judge said the bust wasn't righteous and let him walk. That guy kills a cop and nothing happens? <sighs> That's not fair. Life's not fair, Dexter. Can't anyone do anything? Can't you do something? No. Not now. So what then, though? World just keeps spinning out of control? No. The world can always be set right again. This is another nice glimpse into how the code Dexter plays by was formed. We cut back to Dexter in the crab shack, and having seen Guerrero in there, he's thinking about how this guy was also responsible for the death of a cop, but gets away with it. He follows Guerrero into the toilet and stands at the urinal next to him. I'd say Dexter was sizing him up, but that could sound a bit weird, but Dexter's certainly giving him sideways glances. Guerrero challenges him and we cut to a shot of Dexter's hand, slowly taking a syringe out of his pocket. Then we see a slow panning shot of a man's body, shrink-wrapped to a table. We very briefly wonder if it's Guerrero, and then we see it's actually Matt Chambers. Dexter's playing the home video of the teenager he was just acquitted of killing while drink driving. You. And you. We meet again. the last time. I didn't do any, anything. Some people believe that. Problem is, I don't. But it's true. I was, I was set up. By whom? That, that family. And they needed someone to blame. It's a natural thing to do when you're grieving. So then none of this is your fault. I swear. Okay, 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 no, okay, okay, stop. All right. Okay, look, it, it, 
It was me, only it wasn't me. It was the booze. It, it takes me over. That's a point of view to which I'm not entirely unsympathetic. Neither you nor I is in complete control of our destinies. Although at the moment it would seem I have the upper hand. Oh, sorry. Really, I'm so sorry. You've done this too many times to be sorry. And that's the end of Matt Chambers and another slide for Dex's collection. I do like these killing scenes because they give us a clear view of Dex's dark side, cold and unforgiving. But as you heard, not without the occasional dark touch of humour. As Dexter drives away from the scene, having loaded Chambers' dismembered body into the back of his car, the camera pans up and we see the location was an old liquor store, or off-licence if you live in England. The irony of this is quite deliberate on Dexter's part. He often chooses such suitable locations to kill his victims. Back at his apartment, Dexter notices a doll's head attached to his fridge. And it reminds him, because of course he left it there, it reminds him of the message the ice truck killer sent him. Dexter opens the fridge and sees that the dismembered doll has actually been removed. He knows the ice truck killer has been there. The worst thing about finally putting together a puzzle is finding there are missing pieces. He came back and left nothing behind but a message. Come find me. And I will. There are no secrets in life. Just hidden truths that lie beneath the surface. And that's episode two. The thing that strikes me most at this point in the proceedings is Dexter's calmness and fascination with the communication coming from the ice truck killer. Let's emphasise this for a moment. A serial killer he's not knowingly had any contact with before is sending him messages and has even been inside his apartment. If that happened to you or I, we'd be having kittens, wouldn't we? And we'd have probably moved already to the other side of the world, dribbling like an idiot all the way and cowering in a corner when we got there. But not Dexter. Like I said, he appears very self-assured and confident that the killer means him no harm. The game is more important than his own safety, it seems. It's time for the Dissecting Dexter line of the episode. This is a feature that I thought... Wait there while I fetch some shrink wrap and duct tape. Whoa, steady on there. It's just a podcast. Um, this is a new feature I thought we could have a little fun with. Every episode, Dexter comes out with a perler or two, a funny observation or comment, and I thought I'd pick a favourite or two to share here. Here we go. Another beautiful Miami day. Mutilated corpses with the chance of afternoon showers. And then there's this one that I played earlier, but it made me laugh out loud when I first heard it. It's when Dexter's walking through the courthouse and bumps into that hairy bloke. Unlike the other guys down at the station, I love coming to court to rub shoulders with the good people of the Sunshine State and Sasquatch. If you spot a line that you think's a bit more amusing, then uh, drop me a line and I'll play it next time. Listener feedback. Okay, it's early days, so I didn't expect a deluge, but I've had some encouragement from people on Twitter who intend to follow the podcast, and that's great. 
If I only get a few people listening and enjoying, then it's worth it. I did get an email from a good friend of mine, James in Cumbria, who was very encouraging and thought episode one was well-structured and thought out. That's episode one of the podcast, that is. He observes that one of Dexter's key strengths is its depth and quality of its characters. He goes on to mention some of the character arcs that we can analyse, but as this is a spoiler-free podcast, we'll cover those as we come to them, but James has some good topic suggestions. But in the meantime, thanks for your email, James. It's good to know someone's listening and enjoying, and any and all feedback or comments are very welcome. If you want to email in like James did, you can email me at dissectingdexter, or one word, dissectingdexter at gmail.com where you could also send an mp3 voicemail if you fancy. One thing I would like to hear about is what you think of my episode reviews. I'm very wary of going into too much detail by way of recap. Should I trim this down and recap more briefly? I've been detailed so far because there are a lot of subtleties, little comments from Dexter or looks exchanged in the show, that sort of thing, or how a comment might have an effect on a character, all those sorts of things. It's all relevant, of course, but is it too much? This is only the second episode of the podcast, and I don't want to bore anyone, but at the same time, I want to do each Dexter episode justice, and not let any stone go unturned. Let me know what you think. This is your podcast too. Next time on Dissecting Dexter. Well... I'm well aware it took me forever to get episode 2 done, but I do hope to take significantly less time to produce episode 3. Looking at season 1, episode 3, entitled Popping Cherry. Obviously, the Ice Truck Killer storyline is the main arc of the season, and will continue. And we seem to have another story arc now, that of Carlos Guerrero. His involvement with the killing of Ricky Simmons and his wife, and Sergeant Dokes' pursuit of him. Dokes clearly has Carlos Guerrero's number, and we'll learn that Dokes is like a dog with a bone, or perhaps a ferret with your finger in his mouth. He won't let go. We also have the character arc of Deb and her desire to succeed and honour her father's memory, follow in his footsteps and be a good police officer. Lover or hater at this point, potty mouth that she is, she has a good heart, and the gobby facade seems to be just that. And that's about it for now. But before I go, I'd like to make a special mention of Steve Pettit, a musician from Los Angeles who has very kindly done the voiceovers for the podcast. Steve's been very accommodating and I'm really grateful for his efforts. Thanks, Steve. You can check out Steve's work at www.pongamusic.com and that's spelt P-O-N-G-A-M-O-O-S-I-C. Okay, that's it. Apologies again for how long it took to get another one of these out. Once loss is over, I'll hopefully have more time to devote to Dexter. I do another podcast called Gareth's Waste of Time, covering films and TV shows. You can get it from iTunes or at garethswasteoftime.blogspot.com. So, just to repeat the contact info for this podcast again, you can email me at dissectingdexter at gmail.com or follow the show on Twitter at Dissect Dexter, not at Dissect Dexter. Sorry, not at Dissect... Oh, can't talk. <laughs> in, the, in the first episode, I wrongly said that my Twitter is at Dexter. Apologies. The Twitter for this show is at Dissect Dexter. There, I did it. Okay, 
Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening, and we'll be dissecting Dexter again soon. Hopefully. <laughs>